Welcome back, folks. We are glad to have you here in The Undertow. This is episode number 22 of The Undertow Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, Tonight we're talking about Kill or Be Killed number 17, uh, the latest issue in the ongoing Brubaker and Phillips book. Uh, This is Robert Watson here in Columbia, Missouri, and on the other end of the line, I have Mr. Bubba Beasley. Hey, everyone. Always glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this discussion for a while. Always glad to be here. Yeah, as always, you can find our episodes undertow.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes if you prefer that platform, uh, at Undertow Podcast on Twitter, or you can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. Again, we always like to hear from listeners. Uh, Leave us a rating if you like what we're doing. That uh, helps us spread the word about the show, so we definitely always appreciate that. I'm going to kick things off tonight. Uh, Bubba's going to get us up to speed on all the news. I know we have one huge news item that we want to talk about that uh, there's been some big news, you know, that's been kind of confirmed since our last episode, which is the end of Killer Be Killed. We've been speculating about this, but I think we have a definitive date now. Yep. Um, and like I said, I'll let Bubba get you up to speed on the news. We have a, a, a date. We have an issue number. We have a, a full solicitation. Yep. Uh, Killer Be Killed is wrapping up. Uh, but first, uh, top of the uh, the news is on the other end is that Maniac Cop is still in motion. On a March 20th article published at Birth Movies Death, and this article resulted from a uh, longer interview with director John Hyams about his new film all square and i think they they're going to publish that the the rest of the interview at another time he he, he's basically responding to a a, um earlier article um or earlier interview from the writer of the original movie uh maniac cop who said that as far as he knew it wasn't happening he wasn't getting paid and and brubaker may be a fine writer but his script was crap um and that's not verbatim but it was very close um According to this uh, – or during this interview, they briefly asked about about that comment and about the uh, Maniac Cop remake, and he said uh, – Hyams said, quote, it is going to happen, but not yet. Um, he's going to be the director of the movie, and it's going to be after his eight-episode Netflix show that he is developing and after Too Old to Die Young, the uh, Amazon show uh, that is – being uh, uh, produced and written by Nicholas Winding Refn and Ed Brubaker. Refn's going to be the producer of the um, Maniac Cop remake, and Brubaker is uh, evidently still the uh, screenwriter for it as well. So no idea when it'll actually get in transition from pre-production to production, much less you know actually uh, uh, be released to say nothing of uh, of release venues and that sort of thing, but it is still um, it is still in pre-production. It is still moving. Uh, but yes, the biggest news is that uh, Killer Be Killed is officially wrapping up, and we do have an issue number and date. It's issue twenty, solicited uh, for June twenty seventh. Um, it's being described as the the grand finale uh, of the series, and it came actually quite a bit sooner than I expected, um, and. You know, one thing I'd like to do at some point is is look back through the the news items at at the blog we maintain. Uh, I maintain a criminal blog, criminalcomic.blogspot.com, is go back to the old news items and see how how previous series were announced in terms of wrapping up. You know, particularly the fade out and fatal these these long longer form. Um, yeah, the fade series. out was was seems to be very abrupt, or at least that was how I received the news. Was like. 
Um, it almost feels like it was after, you know, it was like maybe the day or two before that last issue came out, if if memory serves. Yeah, it was, it seemed abrupt. This and this too seems abrupt. And, but I realized just looking back through the descriptions of these upcoming issues and the, their solicitations, there's a very good reason for this uh, seeming abrupt. Issue 19 was described uh, in its solicitation by saying that, quote, the fourth arc ends with a bang. And now issue 20 is the grand finale. So that makes me wonder, is um, issue 19 still ending the fourth arc, which would make issue 20 a, a coda to, to wrap everything in a bow? Or, or, if, it, or if not, uh, issue 20 is the, the um, newly planned conclusion to, to the fourth arc and ultimately to the, the overall series. So we'll, we'll have to see when, when we see it. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's intriguing. I, I do know from what Sean Phillips has said in interviews is that there was an original ending and plan and plans are changed. And, um, with everything that they show behind the scenes and the deluxe editions, they actually don't, uh, reveal a whole lot in terms of what might've been. I'm wondering if we'll, um, if we'll ever find out what was originally planned for this series and, and how things changed and, and even find out why things changed. Uh, but as it is, um, we're going to be reviewing issue 17 tonight. Issue 18 uh, was uh, solicited for April 18th, and I see from comiclist.com, one word, comiclist.com, um, that it's been postponed to April 25th. So um, it's a couple weeks away. Then issue 19th is scheduled for still scheduled for the end of May, May 30th, and then issue 20 is still is now scheduled for June 27th, and then in a March 21st uh, tweet, um, reassuring reassuring one of his fans, Sean Phillip uh, uh, did say that they'll have something new out, um, and he gave the uh, October as the month to be on the lookout for, which makes me think that that instead of doing um, that graphic novella that that romance has been described as and possibly no longer a, a criminal story but that graphic novella um instead of doing it simultaneously with an ongoing series be it you know kill or be killed or the fade out sequel or something else um they may have the the resources and decide to allocate the time to doing just the graphic novel and maybe getting a head start on whatever new series is around the corner. I'm interested to see not only what's next, but um, what what the timing is going to be for whatever new series is planned and for the, the original graphic novella. In the meantime, we'll have uh, plenty to cover here on the Undertow podcast um, because there is lots of uh, – uh, of uh, stories in the back catalog that we can cover in uh, case file episodes, and I'm actually quite looking forward to doing. I was hoping we'd we would do it more often up to this point. Yeah, no, I'm excited about that as well. And you and I have talked about that a lot uh, because you know Bubba and I are obviously huge fans of the criminal books, and you know lots you know Sleeper. And there's there's so many good options that we can explore, um, and it's been cool because we've been able to do an episode for each issue of Killer Be Killed, this was the first ongoing book that we've been, you know, concurrently doing the podcast at the same time. So I like that that regular cadence that we've established with an episode per issue. But also at the same time, I am excited to dive into that back catalog because it's, I mean, obviously they have as rich a back catalog as, as any as any team. So 
um, definitely, yeah, I'd look forward to doing some of those episodes over the summer. So if you're a, if you're a long-term Brubaker and Phillips fan, I think you'll you'll enjoy us diving into some of those um, older books. Yeah, and and in the meantime, we'll definitely take a more comprehensive look back at the entire series, all 20 issues uh, for Kill or Be Killed, when it wraps up. And after it wraps up, I would expect you know a fourth trade paperback, um, and then. I would would imagine one or two uh, deluxe editions. I'm I'm interested to see if if 20 issues is enough to justify two volumes or or if it can be put in an oversized single volume because this is even if this isn't as long running an ongoing series as I anticipated, it's certainly the most episodic. That that um, you know the fade out was definitely a 12 issue story. You know split somewhat arbitrarily into three you know quote-unquote acts in the trade paperbacks it does read better as as 12 but something like fatal definitely broke up into two story arcs set in different eras criminal is obviously um a series of self-contained arcs that that interconnect in interesting ways this is you know this is a single story running 20 issues so i'm i'm curious to see how it will ultimately be be collected in a uh, in one or two deluxe um editions and i would imagine that that we wouldn't see any hardcovers until until next year so probably you know christmas season 2019 um but yeah we'll take a more comprehensive look back at the series um after it concludes but Robert, I was um, we were talking before we started recording just about our reaction uh, to the, to this news. It not only seems sudden, is it is it too soon? Are we are we ready for for more stuff from or f- are we ready for different stuff from Brubaker or Phillips and Phillips? Are they are they ready to give us new stuff? So yeah, that's no, that's an interesting point, and uh, yeah, I feel like. I'm okay with three more issues of this book. And, and it did kind of catch me off guard just because there were so many plot threads that I felt like were being introduced that we haven't really necessarily wrapped up. So it seems like there's going to be a lot. So maybe we'll get you know some, some extra, extra-sized issues here for these last three. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I think, in at least from my point of view, my favorite Brubaker stories have usually been the shorter arc, the shorter arc things like they did with Criminal where you'd get a five or six issues. Um, so it's like, I, I am excited for them to dive into a new project, but at the same time, yeah, I want to see how this wraps up, but I, I think I'm okay with the uh, three more issues. And then, uh, I'm definitely excited for them to get back to the criminal world as well. And I, you know, I think that's on the horizon, but the timing of it, who knows, you know, who knows how that's going to play out. But, yeah. um, I do think it's interesting though, just, uh, that they're going from, like you said, this is definitely their most serialized work that's structured in that way. They're going from that to doing a single standalone complete graphic novel or novella um that's something they haven't really done where it's you know it's not going to be serialized at all but instead going to be released all at one time so that's an interesting kind of dichotomy yeah and particularly this one isn't isn't only serialized but it's very explicit you know this this issue it says okay so where the narration is so where were we and it picks it picks it back up as if you've been waiting. It, it, and I do think this this series, no matter how it's collected in terms of trays and hardcovers, I think it reads really well as a monthly series. But um, yeah, when when you are constrained to telling a um, a work in a very limited span, 
you know, the two criminal one shots or or the three the three stories set in the 70s, um, the three criminal stories under the heading. Um, the Dead and the Dying. The Dead and the Dying. Thank you. Um, that each of those were were very tightly coupled, very interconnected, but they were single issue done in one stories. It's kind of like Stephen King's best work. Um, a lot of people think that his best work are either the novellas or the you know the short novels that he that that he released through Hard Case Crime, and not the the massive you know phone books that that he's produced. Um, he's been known for producing in in this late in his career. Uh, my my reaction has been is that. On the one hand, I think there's a lot that I that I hope doesn't go unanswered in this series, and I think you know we could have seen seen or discovered um, stuff involving Dylan's dad and his apparent interactions with the demon, and and we just discovered his um, deceased um, uh, half brother who who also dealt with the demon and and ultimately both of them committed suicide and and that may or that that it that is definitely ominous and may be foreshadowing to how this series ends um but i was hoping we would see some more some of that i'm definitely hoping that regardless we we get some sort of um closure on whether this this demon is real or not because with that that sort of back history that does kind of definitively point to the demon being real but i I'd, I'd like to see that door be that that question being answered that door being closed but at the same time you know the a a book with this sort of premise you know a demon a demon curses you where you have to to kill um once a month and there's a sort of escalation with the mob and this escalation or this um, transformation in psychology. And I think we – this issue that we're going to go through to, tonight, issue 17, we maybe see the completion of that transformation in terms of being forced to um, – going from, from being forced to, to, to kill to choosing it as a way of life. You know, with all of that – you could see it go in so many places. You could see it escalate going from one, you know, bonkers scenario to another, from one absurdity to another, just just ramping things up. And that really hasn't happened. Um, Dylan dealt had you know, had the one mob kill, then ha- had the mob come after him and thought he was that he he got that behind him and then it was clear that he had to actually deal with the russian mob then once he did so you know that that scene that that flash forward from the very big first issue that came up again and again in the previous arc that does seem to be um his uh dylan at his most violent in this overall story arc unless he goes out in some sort of you know hyper violent yes hyper violent blaze of glory and so if if the story isn't going to ramp up to the sort of jaw-dropping scenarios that only a comic book could do, um, then you know if, if this is the story that uh, Brubaker and Phillips want to tell and they are reaching it to, the, to what they think is a natural conclusion, fine by me. Let's see what's next. Um, but I do – 
I do think it's it's interesting that what has been described as an ongoing arc or ongoing story is very quickly wrapping up, very quickly wrapping up. It's it's going to end literally before the middle of the year, before uh, July 1st. Um, And that was only after, you know, at the end of last year, the announcement that um, the rights to the story have been sold. So I'm wondering. I'm wondering how much that that is interacting, and how much we'll ever find out about about how much that did matter. So no, I think that's a fair point, and I, I think yeah, a couple a couple episodes ago we discussed this. That was when I heard that news that hey, this has been optioned for a movie. That was kind of the first red flag that I thought you know what I bet this is actually pretty close to wrapping up. So I think we talked about that on on a couple episodes ago because I thought. I just can't see that that you know the contractual signing off on these characters in this storyline. Like I would feel like the the producers of the movie and the people that are writing the check would want to know where it was headed. I don't think they would just buy it sight unseen on and say you know you know Sean Phillips says he's fine working not knowing where the plot's going, and you know Ed sends him a month you know a, a few pages at a time. He draws them and he's fine with that. But it's like I don't I just don't and not that I have any kind of insider knowledge on how Hollywood works, but I just doubted that. Um, somebody's going to sign on to that kind of commitment financially and, you know, with that much time and investment um, without knowing where it was headed. So that was kind of the first flag that I thought, I bet this is actually close to wrapping up. But And it's certainly it's a- certainly not the amount of world building that you see in, say, the, the long-running ongoing comic, uh, The Walking Dead. No, that's a good point because I felt like the first, you know, the first third of this series – it did seem like it was going into this expansive territory where it was like we were talking about, oh, there's all these different scenarios. There's these new characters being brought in. Like, where's this headed? Is he going to try to and, take down Wall Street? Is he going to try to take down yeah. City Hall? Yeah. And so I feel like that's kind of being cut short. Like, I felt like it was building up. It was building up, and we were like, where is this going? And now it's like, okay, well, this is where it's going, and now we're kind of on the way back down. You know, I feel like we're reaching the climax quickly, and then it's going to, you know, because uh, we're only talking three issues. So, um that's interesting. It'll be it, it, will, it will definitely be interesting to see how that plays out over three issues. Yep. And and I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what the overall experience is. So you know, when by the time twenty comes out, I'm probably um, whether this is whether we tackle it at the end of the discussion of issue twenty, or we just devote an entire episode to the overall arc. Going to read the whole thing, you know, straight through and see, you know. Is, does it feel like we've been shortchanged, or does it feel like we've we've been getting given something satisfying? And then the even the the question the other question that we won't be able to answer is um, is the story's long term appeal for um, for Brubaker Phillips fans, and then you know comic readers in in general, because like twenty issues that's just about the same length as as say Sleeper, I think went twenty four issues. Will this story have the same kind of lasting, um, lasting appreciation as something that Sleeper does? Because you know it's going back to, to to trade paperbacks again. Sleeper is so that's a great that's a great point, and I, I kind of feel like in, in time will tell. Um, but I kind of feel like with Sleeper, um, I would liken it to like you know a, a band's debut album. So a band makes a huge splash. Um, you know they they burst onto the scene they you know if if they have a huge album 
you know, they may put out another big album at some point in time down the road, but it's like usually that, or it might not even be a debut album, but usually bands have that one impact album that really resonates with people, and that's when their fan base explodes. I feel like Sleeper's kind of that for, because it was so early on in the partnership that I think people were really seeing that, hey, this there's something here between, you know, Brubaker and Phillips. So I feel like that's always going to hold kind of a, have more prestige than in and whether that's warranted or not is a whole nother discussion but i do feel like you know oftentimes whatever gets the most attention um at the beginning when it really hooks people kind of overshadows later works but it, it will be interesting to see how that plays out and i do applaud um brubaker and phillips this book i still feel like is out of the norm for them um you know the 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 format and the style of characters and the style of plots that they use for criminal like they've got that down i mean they're masters at it and this is i mean it's in it still feels like the same creators but it's a different approach i mean with the you've got the demon the supernatural element there's horror elements in the comic um the narration is is quite a bit different you know it's real loose and conversational this this kind of narr- narrative style that we get with Dylan's internal monologue, you know, it's different than what they've done in the past. So I do applaud them for kind of going outside their uh, their wheelhouse, so to speak. Yeah, this has been a fun. This has been a fun trip. Yeah. And I know that I've personally read read this book probably more carefully than any of their other previous work, just because of for you know the preparation for the podcast, just because it happened to coincide. We've done every issue, so um, yeah, it will be interesting to see how how it plays out in their whole catalog of work. We've pr- we've pretty much already went into spoiler territory, but we will give our our spoiler warning for uh, issue number seventeen. We're gonna, you know, continue to dive into this, and um, yeah, this was an interesting issue, and I think Bubba brought up a good point. The central theme of the issue seemed to be that transformation of Dylan. You know, there's no demon in this issue. Uh, he mentions the demon once, but it's basically saying, "I didn't need the demon to tell me this. This is my decision." Um, and, you know, he proceeds accordingly. So I think that was a turning point in kind of the central part of the issue. But the, the issue opens, uh, we see, you know, the nurse giving Dylan his medication, and he's tricking her and actually not taking it. And he says, I was all caught up in my new plan to kill Perry the orderly. So we definitely continue on with, you know, this uh, this plot was established last last issue. It was pretty clear that that was his plan. And so now we're going to see him actually implement it. And and that really is the entire focus of of this issue. Before I reread it, it was, I was thinking to myself, you know, was, I misremembered this as having been an issue with no flashbacks, just a very straightforward narrative, which isn't quite true. It's it does have, you know, we start in the me- in in media rest. We start in the very middle of his what would you call it first his first attempt to kill Perry. Yeah, I then, think so. Yeah, and then the black ba- uh, the flashback to. To explain how we got to this point, and that's a familiar, um, a a familiar structure for for Brubaker Phillips fans to get you hooked on on um, on the very first page and to set up tension from the very first page, and then to to stretch it out a little bit with with the um, flashback explanation. But then after that first attempt, the fail and it fails, and and we have the fallout. Then we have the second attempt, and that's that's pretty much it. That's that's the story. It's not, it isn't a straight run through narrative, but what we're going to see here is everything in um, in a single location from a single POV. You know, from Dylan. Basically, he's not even he's not even showing you from his POV any scenes from outside 
um, outside the walls of the institution and the gate of it, the 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 um, gates and fences of its uh, surrounding yard. So. Yeah, there's even one. There's even one frame, and I t- that I wrote down in my notes that that actually shifts to his POV when he's talking to Doctor Ridley, um, and it's only one shot. It's interesting because it most of the most of the angle shows both of them, and then there's one angle where he stands up, and then you see a POV shot of Doctor Ridley sitting at his desk. So yeah, you're right. The whole thing is from his his point of view, and yeah, they so they give you right up front. He says, "I was all caught up in my plan to kill Perry the Orderly." So you pretty much, as the reader at that point, you know that's what's coming. Um, and he pretty much said as much in the last issue, but it actually hadn't happened yet. And so in his narration, he mentions that a week has gone by since he uh, since he saw Perry groping the patient. So he's been off his meds for a week planning for his kill, or at least a week, but he mentions a week in, the, in his narration. Um, Perry is still just going through his day-to-day tasks at the hospital, taking all the patients out for their outside walk. Uh, so Dylan has been trailing him throughout the hospital and, you know, mentions that it's remarkably easy to shadow someone when you're in a mental hospital and everyone assumes you're drugged out of your mind. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting point because, yeah, I mean, that that's true. And uh, But th- at this point, Dylan starts to second-guess himself because he doesn't actually see Perry do anything else questionable while he's trailing him um, and mentions that most of the patients even seem to like him. So then he, he starts to question you know, what he saw, and he says, did I manufacture a reason to kill somebody? And so he's having this internal debate. And I read a review of this issue on a, a website, retconpunch.com, and I thought they had an interesting take on it. The reviewers mentioned how the early part of the issue felt, you know, heavily claustrophobic. So they said, there's, you know, there's a condensed number of panels per page. They're packed in there. Um, all of the shots are medium or close-up shots. There's lots of people around in every shot. And and I do think they're onto something there that kind of it was symbolizing the nature of being incarcerated in a mental hospital. So it does feel kind of claustrophobic um, at this, at, you know, in the early, like the first third of this issue. And he continues to follow Perry and, you know, eventually realizes, hey, Perry's in this private room with a with a patient, this patient named Renata, this woman named Renata. And so Dylan barges in and catches Perry in the middle of, you know, some sort of sexual act with Renata. And so that pretty much confirms what he suspected about Perry that, uh, you know, what he saw was, you know, what it actually exists. And so then we transition into Dylan's first attempt to take out Perry. And it happens outside on a snowy day. Um, On an increasingly snowy day as we're going from, you know, clear out to to a little bit of snow to to just pour you know, coming down in buckets and a beautiful effect. I saw, I saw a review, I can't remember which one, describing it as very wet snow. And it looks, and that's exactly right, it looks wet. So, Yeah, it's blinding. Yeah, I mean, uh, it just, it increasingly, it's just a whiteout, basically, you know. And I know there's, there's this interesting contrast with um, Dylan and Perry are both wearing dark coats. And so, of course, there's this, you know, this significant contrast with their dark coats against this white background and this white snow. Um, would love to know how to how the effect was done whether it was um uh digital and whether it was something that that sean phillips did and whether he did it prior to coloring or was it something betty brightweiser did as part of the coloring yeah i'd never seen that exact effect used before it did kind of jump out at me it was something that i don't necessarily think sean had done yeah sean or betty had done that exact thing in any earlier issue. So it was, it was interesting. Yeah. Somewhat out of focus, um, 
in motion, almost photorealistic snow. Yeah. Yeah. So Dylan wanders away from the group, and this is all part of his plan. Um, so he's, you know, he's wanting Perry to come look for him. And so Dylan knows that when he's outside, you know, he's usually smoking a joint. So he wants him stoned or drunk. He says, that's this first feeling of release from the claustrophobia of the hospital happens when Dylan wanders off to the lake. So we finally get a full page shot of Dylan. And he's at this point, he's in full, pretty much full vigilante mode, uh, standing in the snow and looking ominous. Again, he's got this dark coat on and completely focused. I mean, at this point, it's obvious that you know, he's not drugged out of his mind. He He's completely focused on the task at hand. So we get this shot that finally opens up. He's standing there, and his plans are to push Perry onto this frozen lake and drown him. And at this point, he again, he's having this kind of internal debate about his motives. He says, my motives felt conflicted. He starts to question these motives. Maybe, he says, maybe I'm doing this to prove to Dr. Ridley um, that I'm truly the vigilante. But then he mentions, but you know what, I do plan on getting away with it, so obviously I couldn't prove to him that I'm the vigilante if I'm going to get away with it. And uh, again, like I mentioned earlier, there's no side of the demon in this issue. This is completely Dylan deciding to kill Perry on his own with a clear mind, you know, free of any chemical substance. And uh, everything goes awry because the other orderly actually finds him first. So this plan, you know, he has to abort this plan once the other orderly shows up and finds him first. And and pretty funny narration when that happens is that so much of this and here's another thing that we may may never never find out you know we may need to adjust our expectations with with the series wrapping up as quickly as it is is we may never find out how actually Dylan is communicating to the reader you know what's is there an in story explanation for this this conversational narration that he's having with with the reader. So much of the time he's he he's talking, if not omnisciently, he he's talking um, with the perspective of of hindsight. And in this, it was you know the the narration was you know maybe the only important thing was oh shit, and it was inter- interrupted by the the other orderly who I don't think was ever named. Um, and I I thought that was a a funny, it was amusing a. a a very um, funny switch to a an in real time, present time um, uh, point of view narration. So, but that's uh, an inter- that's an interesting point, and it did feel real to life. You know, just him. You know, he's like I said, he looks ominous. He's got this plan in place, and he's like, oh, oh shit, never mind. You know, this guy walked out of the blue. Um, but that's an interesting point that I hadn't thought of. Is that most of the narration seems to be him telling it from the future to the to the reader, um, but at that at that point, no, it's real time. Yeah, it's it, real time. Or and this will is going to come up, um, and one and my recommendation actually is, you know, is commentary, comment or or review, you know, for movies and everything is that that. You can do it after the fact. You can write up an essay like Roger Ebert would do, or you can release, you know, your own third-party commentary track the way Red Letter Media does. And that's almost what it fe- this little scene feels like: is that his narration, you're almost listening to his commentary track of uh, of the movie of his life, and he he, he forgot this scene. Like he forgot he he forgot that that it was that it he doesn't end up killing Perry because of the orderly, 
So he's watching it happen. He gets caught up in the story and then watching it happen realizes, oh, yeah, I forgot that guy came out of the blue. Yeah. Yep. So the, no, it, I like I like that analogy. Yeah, and and this scene we I don't think we can uh, move on from this scene without mentioning uh, the full page um, splash page with the narration that this is one of two of the pages in in this uh, issue that you know similar in their construction but a lot of contrast in in in, in what they actually show and I think they're really the two standout pages for this issue in terms of artwork and they're the key pages in terms of uh of the theme and the narration and the text and i'm not sure that that we've had quite as much um synchronicity with with the art and the text um in most of these issues where you know the most important text is on the most important page visually and i think there have been other splash pages that I've I think have been more impressive on a technical level, particularly the the artwork that his father supposedly draw uh, drew that we know Sean Phillips drew, but that that his father um, created of the um, of the the sexy sci-fi scenes or the scenes with the demons, but you know if I had to show show somebody who hadn't read this book one image. To con to convey what it's about without even without any text, it's the image uh, of Dylan staring directly at the reader in the snow, you know, ready to kill. Yeah, and it's there's kind of it's kind of like one light and one dark version of those two splash pages. You know, one's outside in the snow, and then the next one, it's you know, it's all shadows and in, in jail cell. Yep. Um, one of them is but... is the the vigilante freed. And on the move, the other one is, you know, him confined and, you know, trapped like an animal. So Yeah, and that was that was one thing that, that jumped out at me at, during this particular issue is, I you know, I, I almost saw some remnants um, of, like, the 80s horror films, you know, like Mike Myers, Michael Myers and the Halloween, you know, how he was stalking, how he was stalking uh, Perry and then how he always had that, you know, that's the, the way he stood in those two images kind of reminded me of like Michael Myers in those eighties Halloween movies where he's just, you know, constantly walking at this slow pace, but gaining ground and just, you know, this real methodical focused approach. And I, and I wonder, you know, behind the scenes, how much of what Ed Brubaker has been writing for issues like this, you know, the methodical, the implacable, I think would be another good word. How much of this is echoing with the, um, the maniac cop script that he wrote. And so after this plan goes awry, uh, we, we get a scene, a short scene with Dr. Ridley. Um, so Dr. Ridley is questioning Dylan about why he was back by the lake, you know, and Dylan's playing it all off, just being confused and drugged. And that's kind of his go-to move. This, this issue is, you know, anytime he gets in a hairy situation, he just kind of acts like he's out of it. Um, and so Dr. Ridley shows him a newspaper story and you know about the copycat vigilante being killed in a standoff with the police. And that's when we get that POV shot from Dylan's perspective of, of Dr. Ridley sitting at his desk. Dylan asks for the newspaper, and Dr. Ridley tells him he can't, which, of course, that becomes important later on. He can't have it. But um, like I said, Dylan just plays it off as he's completely out of it and is still planning his kill and trying to figure out a new plan. And then this is the the single mention of the demon comes shortly after that. Dylan says the demon was gone, but the evil he'd revealed to me hadn't gone anywhere. So I I think that's the significant uh, 
plot twist of this issue is that, you know, this is him deciding, hey, I'm going to take out Perry. I don't need the demon to tell me this. He said this evil that he's revealed is, um, you know, it's always going to be with me now. And he just can't he can't live with it, basically, is what he's saying. Yep. And, and I was never going to be OK with that. I, I like the succinctness of of that one bit of uh, dialogue and the decisiveness. I think it. Since the end of the last arc, you know, when when he had um, left the Russian mob in tatters and was planning on on moving on with his life, but considering, gosh, maybe I should make this uh, vigilante thing a full time gig, you know, there was that possibility. And then he then he saw um, the demon again. I I think now he has fully embraced that decision to to become a um a, a serial killer for the rest of his life you know however long that life may be but the other thing about that line is we have to remember that um that dylan here is an nyu liberal arts grad student millennial and i was never going to be okay with that sounds like what a millennial would say <laughs> and you could yeah i mean you could argue you know the millennial stereotype of being short-sighted and kind of impulsive you could you know you could argue that that's coming through in him as well i think with this these decisions that he's making well and and an impulsive yeah um in in his narration he admits that he's he started following perry without even really realizing it well and that's the other question that i think it that i didn't really have an answer to so he you know he mentions that he's you know he's figured out that his motivation for killing Perry corresponds with a new desire to be out of the hospital. So I'm not exactly sure how um, he how that's going to pan out with with this kill. I, I mean I know he's acting like he he's going to I presume he's going to pretend to the doctor that yeah I realize I'm not the vigilante and that wasn't me and I was just you know messed up there for a while and confused. So I I see where that's going, but yeah I don't. I don't see how the killing of Perry fits into that strategy of getting out of the hospital quite yet. And I don't I'm not sure. Well, on the the one hand is that, you know, the last page by the end of the next week they'd be hiring a replacement for him for Perry and I'd be one step closer to my to getting out of here. Um back to my, you know, and he interrupts himself again. Uh back to my 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 life. Um it's not clear how killing Perry uh gets into that. Um it may be that it's not part of the plan, that it's more of I was trying to kill this guy. I'm – you know, this is how I'm going to respond to wrongs that I see in the world and injustices. And in this case, you know, the, the, the guy is a, is a sexual predator. Um, and you know, it, it may just be you know, his, his going – almost on primal instinct, having it decided this is what I what I am. I'm a predator of those who are predators. No, that that kind of makes sense uh, that maybe, yeah, because before, you know, he was basically turning himself in, and he, he just wanted Dr. Ridley to believe him that he was truly the vigilante and that this demon was haunting him. So maybe that's all he means is that, hey, I've moved on from that plan and realized that I want out of here and I want to continue doing what I was doing. Like he's okay with that plan now. He doesn't feel guilty. He doesn't feel conflicted. He's just embraced that. That's this is who I am at this point. So so maybe that is all he means by that is just 
I've turned that corner to where there's no internal debate about should I turn myself in? Should I, you know, stay in a mental hospital? Like, I'm just going to do this now. Yep. And this time things go, go according to plan. Well, things uh, still don't go completely according to plan, but he, he improvises yeah, he well. Out. Yeah. Yeah. He lucks out. So we get to the inevitable part of the issue where, um, he takes out Perry. Of course, like I said, this has been telegraphed from the beginning of even even from last issue. Really, um, we knew this was coming. So, you know, Dylan is subconsciously following Perry as Perry's leaving to go home from work. Perry eventually realizes he's being followed and confronts Dylan. They're kind of off in the corner. It seems like it's late at night. Um, there's nobody around at this point. So he he turns the tables and actually grabs Dylan and forces him into the stairwell which ironically is where Dylan mentioned earlier in the comic that he thought would be the ideal place to kill Perry. That was his initial plan, but he, you know, he he decided that wouldn't work. So anyway, he does end up in the stairwell with Perry. But which is but which is a, an entirely sensible way for Perry for Perry to react. It wasn't, you know, it didn't seem um it didn't seem contrived at all that Perry, you know, no. <laughs> would grab Perry's the guy. Obviously, and, you know, yeah, Perry's obviously suspicious about Dylan, you know, because he barged in on him with the patient. Then they had the incident outside where he wandered off. So, you know, Perry, I think, knows that something's up. Um, and, and this was the last straw, basically. So he does, like you said, that it was a it was a kind of an expected response that he confronts Dylan and realizes that he's being followed. Um, so so Perry threatens Dylan about this sexual incident he witnessed earlier. And then, of course, Dylan turns the tables on him, grabs Perry, throws him down the stairs, tripping him on the way down. The fall doesn't kill him, and Dylan mentions that, hey, actually, stairs aren't, aren't an efficient way for someone to die. So Dylan walks down and breaks his neck with his foot. And I think, is Just this the first is this the first kill First kill without a gun? Is this Dylan's first kill without a gun? This, it, I, I think it is. It is also... Um... Gosh, there's so much about this is um, first from the, the, the just the storytelling is, um, <laughs> yeah, things did not go to plan. Um, but Perry's Perry's own self-motivated actions fall fall into um, into right into Dylan's hands um, in a way that's not contrived. But then you have not only is this his first kill. I think you're right. This his first uh, uh, kill with his bare hands. I think this is the his first uh, uh, kill, though um, his confrontation with the um, with the Russian mob boss came close. I think this is the first kill where 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 he was actually cutesy with his dialogue. You know, with with he he had enough. Um, yeah, he Peter he Peter Parkered it up a little bit. Yeah, you're not supposed to say retard anymore, and then kills him. Like in terms of what Brubaker and Phillips have done even with this series with with the demon and with the the bizarre 70s sci-fi porn artwork and, and the cityscapes and everything else there there have been some spectacular bits of art here this isn't spectacular but i do want to draw our listeners attention to to you know something understated but hard to get right and really really effective is both on on these pages and and throughout this issue is Sean Phillips' work with with eyes it, on this page, particularly in the one where Perry has just shoved uh, Dylan into the stairwell? You see Dylan looking right at the reader. You know, if looks could kill, you know, murderous looks and look in his eyes, 
And then you see Perry return that look, looking almost again at the reader. And I think this is one of the few times, maybe the only time, that we really see um, who Perry is. You know, if you look very early on, he has this this smiling face, where but the eyes don't match it. You know, and and it doesn't seem real. It does seem fake. It seems insincere, and. The difference between insincere, smiling Perry early on and serious, violent Perry toward the end. You know, it's just similar to um, the kind of uh, vacant, empty, and and I think, um, you know, Dylan put it, you know, this a sort of a sad smile, but the vacant, empty, and, and sad look of uh, – of, Perry's mental patient victim, uh, Renata. You compare that with, um, you compare that with the sheer determination, and the the murderous intent on Dylan's part, and Sean Phillips is conveying a ton just with the eyes. And then there's the nice touch to kind of tie it all back together. That this issue takes a nice full circle because, um, after that brutal moment, Dylan finds the newspaper in Perry's bag that. Dr. Ridley denied him from having in an earlier scene of the vigilante being killed by the cops. Um, so, of course, he reaches down and picks it up. Yeah, and I was reminded of um, Teague Lawless in prison in the Savage Sword uh, criminal one-shot where you know he, he, he kills a guy who's trying to kill him and then still walks away with the comic book that, that he never got a chance to finish inside the prison. And just this transition from brutal, physical um, – you know, bloody or or bone breaking in this case, bone breaking violence transition from that to, you know, the height of sophistication and, and intellectual activity. You know, reading literature that's just that's just hilarious. And and more than that, um, this contrast is a meaningful um, is a meaningful step in the story because it sets up what is apparently going to be the next issue, which is Dylan's explanation of what happened. Um, uh, of what happened to the copycat vigilante, and um, and I'm assuming we're going to to get back to seeing uh, Detective Lily Sharp. Yeah, I mean, I, I they keep hinting that she's coming back, so I assume that she will play a part in in some or all of these next three issues. Um, and yeah, so as Dylan predicted, he does. You know, he mentions in his narration that he gets away with this crime. You know, Perry has pills and weed in his bag so everyone assumes that he was high and you know slipped and fell down the stairs and then the yeah i loved the final shot of this issue with dylan reading the newspaper in his cell covered in shadows i mean the once again the artwork i think was and this wasn't a, a big shot it was just a a standard size panel but i thought it was fantastic and so he also mentions, yeah, in his narration, he also mentions that, oh, I completely forgot to get to the part about Mason calling the cops, so we'll have to talk about that next time. So once again, there's just these, there's a lot of loose ends that we're talking about, you know, between Lily Sharp. Um, I don't know if we're ever, if the vigilant, the copycat vigilante's identity is important, or if it is literally just some random dude that's a copycat killer, like if that will come back up. There's just, there's a lot of plot threads that are still question marks for um to see where they, you know, how they shake out in the next three issues. Yeah, and and so much, you know, personal stuff is, you know, Kira left le- left. Yeah, Kira hasn't been mentioned. Yeah, she was yeah. she wasn't in this issue at all. Well, and and she left Dylan heartbroken, leaving her him, 
you know, mentally broken in, in a mental institution, do we see her again? Is that, is that the sad end to their, to, to their relationship? And then what do we find out about – what more do we find out not only about the demon but about Dylan's uh, father and half-brother? Yeah, I'm hoping for somehow uh, Dylan's dad's artwork to work its way back into the plot just so we can see you know, Sean do his thing where it's another artist filtered through Sean Phillips. I, you know, I would like to see some more of that as well. Yeah, and it may be, it may be just going from, from the artwork um, for – or the cover art for 19 and 20 that we may still be at the institution, but we'll, we will find out. Um, but it, this – Past issue, issue 17, is the one uh, that has the wraparound cover. Um, the one th- other thing worth mentioning about it is you can see um, the full wraparound cover in the uh, in, in the writer's page, in Brubaker's uh, secret ingredient page at the en- pages at the end of the uh, issue. But this small c- shot really doesn't do it justice. If you have a chance to get the wraparound cover, um, if you're a fan of variants, and particularly if you're a fan of uh, Sean Phillips' artwork, it's it's very nicely done. Yeah, I would like to think that it, I think it's time for Dylan to get back to the city. So I hope it I hope it happens pretty quickly in the next issue. I think we've exhausted the uh, I feel like we've exhausted the mental hospital a little bit. So I'm anxious for him to get back um, and see what's going on with Kira and in the city. So it it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, shall we transition into uh, recommendations for the month, Bubba? Certainly. Um, I have a couple of them, that, a couple odd ones, if you want me to, to go first. Yeah, go for it. All right. So um, in general, I've been trying to recommend things that I think would appeal specifically to Brubaker and Phillips fans as opposed to, to what I'm personally fixing on, fixated on. But in this case, uh, no, it's, it's, it's entirely personal, so I hope uh, our listeners will indulge me. Um, it's just, you know, all of this is under the broader topic of uh, recontextualization, remixing. Um, if you notice, you know, what we're doing, if you, if you, you know, see a lot of YouTube videos, there's an obvious appeal to joining an existing, what I would call a cultural ecosystem, a cultural ecosystem that's rooted around an idea or, you know, what you, what you would call an IP, intellectual property, but really an idea where, um, there's an appeal to, to creating content based on on that other content, that regular stream of content. You know, if it if it's you know, a TV series or the next blockbuster movie, the next whatever it is, Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, uh, Star Wars, whatever the case may be, that provides grist of the mill for you to to respond against. Um, it also provides a built-in audience. And so if you can process or respond to that content enough where what you produce is fair use, that can lead um, to, to monetization. It can very least um, lead to an audience for original work. And, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, original content, um, it would be better than the sort of reactive – in some ways – Re, it would be better than the sort of reactive stuff, but you know, it's it's hard to find things that are truly original. You know, uh, um, reboots and copycats, and you know, the Orville being a um, a 
really an homage not only to Star Trek in general, but Next Generation in particular. Um, but I was thinking of this this idea of of remixing, recontextualization that you you know you can have have reactions like i mentioned uh, earlier in the, in the uh, episode you can have this sort of asynchronous reaction and written reviews or those plinket videos that red letter media did or or podcasts um and in, uh, or you can have uh, the synchronous um reactions where you're you're reacting at the same time and i think that was really introduced with uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 and now with with riff tracks and and that sort of thing uh third party commentary tracks and and those really detestable reaction videos where you just see people you know squealing or bawling like children um you know which stuff that's ripe for parody and that I know Red Letter Media has already rightly done you can have reaction you can have reiteration so it's basically um, you're taking the, the, the idea and you're repeating it, particularly uh, casting it into other genres. And that's, you know, you got parody, Weird Al, you know, Mel Brooks movies. You have cover versions. Um, and then you have, have cultural translation. You know, a lot of Kurosawa, Kurosawa films. You know, Seven Samurai inspired Magnificent Seven. Hidden Fortress inspired Star Wars. You can have, have a reiteration um, – in terms of language, you know, like um, uh, Shakespeare, uh, there are a couple books out that are fun reads. Um, basically, uh, uh, William Sh- William Shakespeare's Star Wars, you know, Verily a New Hope, or even better, if you if anyone listening is a fa- huge fan of The Big Lebowski, which is ce- celebrating, I believe it's 20th anniversary this year. There's a a book out that is um, basically a a uh, screenplay or a, a or a script for a play that you you actually can't produce without rights from the Coen brothers, not just this writer, Two Gentlemen of Lebowski. It's basically the big Lebowski cast into Shakespearean language, and it's hilarious. But in, ter- but in addition to reaction and reiteration, you also have recontextualization, where you take either the picture and or the sound, and then you fragment it, you remix it, and you put it in a different context. You know, with music, you have sampling, you have mashups. Um... With, with films and with trailers, you can either just do the sound, take the, the existing sound, and add your own pictures. So you'll see Lego versions of trailers. You'll see what are called sweeted versions of trailers You know, uh, uh, from the tradition of, of – uh, the recent tradition of, of um, guys in Sweden doing very, very, very lo-fi versions of, of movie trailers. Or you can just take the picture and add your own sound. Like bad lip reading, or if you like music videos, they're they're called shreds videos. Like there's one of of the Beach Boys doing "I Get Around," where the audio has been replaced to an a a deliberately terrible rendition of the song. Um, it's hilarious if 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 you don't treat the Beach Boys as too sacrosanct. But then you can do full remixing. You know, recut trailers. You know, the the, the latest comedy make the present a trailer that that treats it like a horror movie or a horror movie presented as a, a, a as a uh, romantic comedy or as a or, or as a sci-fi epic you know you have these bizarre remixes um one one genre is called youtube poops which is just as many different changes as you can make to a video um and this sort of thing actually i mean this predates um this predates youtube and the the modern internet by 
by more than a decade. Um, U2, during their uh, Zoo TV concert, they had a, um, a, a company called, what was it, Emergency Broadcast Network. They did a video of then-President George Herbert Walker Bush you know, in the lead-up to um, Operation Desert Storm, his, his Oval Office speech about Iraq. They remixed it and took that last syllable of Iraq and, and remixed it for him uh, basically doing the lyrics to We Will Rock You, to Queen song, hilariously. Um, and you have things that are even more complicated. Um, if, you ha- if you're a big fan of The Shining, you know, look up something called The Chickening, which is a very bizarre trailer based on footage from The Shining. But the two things I'd like to, to recommend tonight, you know, and, and I would say about all of this, all of this could be considered art insofar as they're, they're human artifacts, but I'm not sure that they're, they're all worthwhile art. And so we need, you know, we need curation. We need help to find the single trees and when really every idea produces a forest of forests. And there are two things that I've been really fixated on lately that, that I think are severely uh, underexposed, underappreciated. Um, one of them's pretty long, one of them's short. The long one is from a, a YouTube channel called Oral Knots, not oral as in mouth, O-R-L, O-R-A-L, but oral as in audio, A-U-R-A-L. Uh, everything they do involves music and involves audio. And they've recently released the sixth um, video in there. They, they've done what basically a Star Wars um, a remix. It's They describe it as, quote, our alternate Star Wars dimension where the Jedi are douchebags, the Sith are business-savvy powerhouses, and droids are mentally unstable sociopaths. And they basically took the prequel trilogy – and condensed it down to an hour worth of videos. They took the original trilogy and did it to two hours. So you have basically a three-hour epic, and that they'd say, again quoting them, quote, that didn't used to have a coherent story but now kind of does. And it, it began in – the first video came out in March of 2013, and it has only gotten like two, two and a half million views. So not, not a – it hasn't gone nearly as viral as it should, I would say. But began in March 2013. It concluded this past April 5th with um, episode six, The Last Laser Master. And the thing's hilarious. It includes comments on the flaws of the prequel storytelling and the prequel's um, continuity with the original trilogy and, and just comedy from its own – from its, the, 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 its own story that it's telling. Um, and even some surprisingly touching stuff with the love triangles that they set up and the um, and, and Vader's remorse for completely different reasons at the end of essentially Return of the Jedi. And every one of them also has really fantastic music. So the, the Jedi lightsaber fights are um, repurposed as dance battles. And to these dance battles, they've added their own original music. Really good music. There's some comedy there sometimes, and sometimes it's just great, you know, beats, great, great techno and hip hop. Um, and they've made the videos, the, the music video parts of them really trippy. And yeah, it's 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 a f- if you're a fan of Star Wars or or you know or have seen it enough, whether you are or not, you'd still call yourself a fan. It's three hours worth spending. Um, and then the, the if you don't have that kind of time, the short recommendation, a single uh, short music video, it's a mashup by the uh, YouTube um, 
YouTube channel Isosign, about whom I know I've been able to determine absolutely nothing. But it's a mashup: Taylor Swift versus Nine Inch Nails. Shake it off, parenthetically, the perfect drug. It's mashing up Taylor Swift's 2014 um, single and video for Shake It Off with Nine Inch Nails, essentially Trent Reznor's um, 1997 uh, single and video, The Perfect Drug. Both of the videos were directed by by Mark Romanek, and it's such a brilliant mashup that the that this song, more so than either of the original versions. Have been, has been running in through my head for weeks. And this is another video, only two and a half million views. And I think it's it's pretty much summed up with, uh, with, with the video's top comment on the YouTube page. is quote, I like how it looks like Old Navy and Hot Topic are having a dance-off. So, so that's, that's what I've been watching lately, is, is oral knots and, uh, and mashup videos. So how, how about you, Robert? Something, something more normal. I would, uh, I would hope and assume something more sane, something from the more, <laughs> well, I'm, more traditional I'm, side of things. I'm going to recommend a podcast, which I don't think I've ever done yet as a as a monthly recommendation. But of course, we're doing a podcast here, so big fans of the medium. Um, but a different a different style of podcast. This is a podcast that I just recently discovered, maybe in the last two months or so, and I have not. There's one there's one season out, one season finished, and the second season is currently in production. And I haven't listened to all of the episodes yet, but I've listened to about a third of them. Um, but it's called Cocaine and Rhinestones, and it's a it's a podcast by um, a gentleman named Tyler Mahan Co, who is the uh, son of the outlaw country artist David Allen Co. If you're familiar with that name, this is his son. You don't have um, to call me darling. Yes. <laughs> yes, and uh, you know this is a this is an interesting podcast. I think the tagline is "Cocaine and Rhinestones" is a podcast about the history of country music made in the 20th century. So pretty broad, um, but it's actually a very niche a niche podcast, um, and I think. You know, podcasts are at an interesting crossroads right now. You know, the secret is out. They're, you know, they're hugely popular. The floodgates are open. So um, I think, you know, we're saturated with podcast options to listen to. So, you know, our approach here at The Undertow is to go extremely niche with our subject matter. Um, So that's what we hope will differentiate us from the, you know, the dozens of other comics-related podcasts. So we've dedicated our time and effort to a single creative comics team and you know and cocaine and rhinestones isn't quite as niche as what we're offering but still niche nonetheless and it's you know it's starting to generate some significant press and uh it's quite interesting he you know he's it's just co is the uh the only force behind it i think he you know writes it produces it researches it and hosts it it's just him um and he has, you know, I will say he has kind of a strange delivery style. It's almost, he's kind of amped up, almost journalistic delivery style. Um, so it takes a little while to get used to his delivery style, but um, it's fascinating stuff. And he gives this he gives this very detailed bibliography for each episode, showcasing the books that he's drawn from for his research. And I mean, this is, it, the, the amount of detail that he's giving in these episodes is is immensely impressive. And you don't necessarily have to be a country music fan to to enjoy this podcast. I mean, you could be a, you know, there's episodes where he just goes off on these extremely deep dives into obscure bits of country music history. Um, you do get some household names in the in the episodes, you know, Merle Haggard, Ernest Tubb, Loretta Lynn, those kinds of people show up. But then there's also these obscure, or at least obscure to me, 
characters from even that predated that from earlier in country music history. They go, it, you know, there's there's true crime stories that that come out through this. There's just like I said, these bizarre deep dives into these uh, bits of you know American history, um, and it's quite fascinating. And uh, so co. I, I read that he claims that he probably puts a hundred hours into each episode of the podcast, and honestly, I can believe it. Uh, like I said, the the research, the level of research and detail is something. They're long episodes. There, you know, they might be an hour and a half. Some might be even, you know, go closer to two hours. Um, but I'll just give you a couple examples of the types of episodes there are. You know, and I I do, I do think that some of it would, you know, kind of overlap a little bit with with what we're doing here. Um, for example, there's one episode that's it's called The Murder Ballad of Spade Cooley. So uh, the synopsis is Spade Cooley came to California in the early 1930s as poor as everyone else who did the exact same thing at the exact same time. Only Spade became a millionaire, and all he needed to accomplish that was a fiddle, a smile, and a strong work ethic. If it sounds like the American dream, stick around to hear how it became an American nightmare of substance abuse, mental illness, and eventually sadistic torture and murder. If this episode doesn't screw you up, you're already screwed up. Fun for the whole family. Wow. Yeah, and I mean it's and it is, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's you know, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's a it's a bizarre tale and it's fascinating. Um and like I said, it it's it's pretty much a true crime story. It just so happens to coincide with the history of country music. So he, he finds these interesting crossroads and then goes in these deep dives. And and of course other episodes are not nearly as intense, but but just as interesting for, you know, for example, he's got a, a full episode on the Leuven Brothers, who are a famous country music duo. And he goes into this, you know, quite great detail about the way that, that these two brothers could sing together. You know, and it's called Blood Harmony. So he, he does this scientific breakdown of why siblings sing harmony in a way that can't be replicated by anyone else. And so that's a pretty interesting take on that. Um, so it's just these bizarre tales that that stretch over different decades, different locales, and you know, not entirely unlike what you know Brubaker and Phillips do with their criminal tales. So I think it's worth a listen. Like I said, it's a it's a super niche dive, um, and uh, it's it's worth your time. I I, I look forward to uh, season two coming out. Like I said, season one is all available on his website, cocaineandrhinestones dot com. So um, wanted to give a quick shout out to that podcast. You you've convinced one person uh, already. I mean, um, so I don't listen to a lot of cut. I say I don't now, but more more than some of my friends. But my mom listened to a lot when when I was uh, a real young, you know, when I was small, um, early nineteen eighties, and <laughs> watching a movie like um, two thousand uh, what was it two thousand nine's Crazy Heart, you know. Um, uh, Jeff Bridges, instead of as a uh, as a uh, stoner bowler in California, he's a uh, drunk, a literal alcoholic um, country music writer and and, and singer um, in the uh, in, out west. And the different, it, it was partly the the performance is is that him playing drunk, a, a drunk country singer was just different enough from him being the dude in the Big Lebowski. I was having flashbacks to 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 some of my mom's less reputable friends. It's like, whoa. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you know, you want to talk about crime stories. Half of the country songs. Um the the name of the Johnny Crack Cash box set was what was it? God Love Murder. And it was, you know, all of his songs were either about God 
or about love, particularly later on, Junior Carter Cash, or, or about about murder. And you had Folsom City or Folsom Prison Blues, um, and his cover, cover, and this cover is I think Love and Murder. His cover of uh, Long Black Veil. There's yeah. there's some great crime stories in country music songs. No, jo- yeah, Johnny Cash is pretty much a genre unto himself, I think. But but no, I've made that point before with people. It's like, you know, there was the. Uh, you know, kind of the congressional argument against, you know, violent hip hop of like the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, how if this content was too objectionable for children and all that, that debate. And I was like, man, you listen, throw on like Johnny Cash's Delia. And that's as dark as any hip hop song that you're ever going to hear. I mean, it's just like as dark as it gets, basically. Um, you can find our episodes com, or they are all posted on iTunes as well. And uh, we will be back next month for uh, issue number 18 as we kind of wind things down on Killer Be Killed. And we look forward to uh, diving into some of the uh, back catalog of Brubaker and Phillips this summer. So we hope you stick around and uh, we will see you on down the road. Delia, oh Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't a shot, oh Delia. I'd have had her for my wife Delia's gone One more round Delia's gone I went up to Memphis And I met Delia there Found her in her parlor And I tied her to her chair Delia's gone One more round Delia's gone she was low down and trifling And she was cold and mean Kind of evil make me want to grab my submachine Delia's gone, one more round Delia's gone First time I shot her I shot her in the side Hard to watch her suffer But with the second shot she died Delia's gone One more round Delia's gone But jailer, oh jailer Jailer, I can't sleep Cause all